Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Every year on my birthday since about fourth grade, when my birthday cake is brought out and I blow out my birthday candles, I have thought I wish for my mom to get better. All these years later, that's still what I wish for every single year. My mom has dealt with chronic pain for her entire life. And there were some years as I was growing up that she was in bed with the lights out with a violent migraine for half of the week, every single week. And she's also suffered from back pain, jaw pain, and stomach pain, among a lot of other things. And her doctor's inability to help her, despite their best efforts, was a huge source of discussion and anguish in my house as I was growing up. So when I heard the title, Unwell Women, I knew that this was a book that I needed to read and that we needed to add to our reading list. And then I knew immediately who I wanted to read it with me, and that's Cassie Christensen from my master's program. So I'm super excited to be discussing this book and to welcome Cassie to our show today. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you, Amy. It's really a pleasure to be here. And what a touching story about your mother. Okay, the next step is to introduce our author, and I'll read just a little bit about her. Her name's Eleanor Cleghorn, and she has a background in feminist culture and history, and her critical writing has been published in several academic journals. After receiving her PhD in humanities and cultural studies in 2012, Eleanor worked for three years as a postdoctoral researcher at the Ruskin School of Art at the University of Oxford, on an interdisciplinary arts and medical humanities project. She now works as a freelance writer and researcher and lives in Sussex, England. And her own pain and other symptoms were dismissed for seven years before she was finally diagnosed with lupus. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that was kind of the catalyst for her to do this research. And Eleanor Cleghorn, I should mention, is British. She's English. Um, I heard her interviewed on NPR. She was talking about this book, and she's just a gorgeous writer. I thought her writing was so clear and so beautiful, and she's equally articulate as a speaker. And I'm a huge fan now after having read her work and and heard her. So, So let's dig into this book. As always, we'll just choose a few chapters and a few subjects to highlight, and then we'll hope that lots of listeners will actually read the book and and get everything that Cleghorn had to say. So I think, Cassie, you're going to start us off with the introduction. Is that right? Yes. So I really think that throughout much of history, a woman's worth depended on her having children whether it was through forging alliances and producing heirs, continuing the family line, or producing children to assist their parents in the fields or household. And within a society that viewed reproduction as the primary role of of a woman, medical men reduced women's illness entirely to being attached to their reproductive organs. And throughout this book, Cleghorn often brings us back to this very point. As a feminist cultural historian, the author really exposes gender biases as she looks at the history of medical disparities through the lens of gender. And I noticed that there's this fascinating side-by-side description of medical history and the women's movement, all the while exposing this bias in medicine. So I wanted to start off with a quote from her. Well, two quotes, actually. 
She says, medicine has inherited a gender problem. Medical myths about gender roles and behaviors constructed as facts before medicine became an evidence-based science have resonated perniciously. And these myths about female bodies and illnesses have enormous cultural sticking power. Today, gender myths are ingrained as biases that negatively impact the care, treatment, and diagnosis of all people who identify as women. And I think as we as we go on, both you and I are going to talk about this even from personal perspectives. There's really no woman out there that could uh, dispute this quote. Mm-hmm. Another quote I think is a very good example of a particular condition that, that shows this bias. So she says, endometriosis, a chronic, incurable disease whereby endometrial tissue grows and spreads in other places in the body, is an object lesson in male-dominated medicine's historic failures. This disease was named in the 1920s, but it has existed in medical literature for centuries. Across those centuries, so many punitive fictions and fantasies have been projected onto women's blood and pain. Its symptoms, including excruciating pelvic, back, stomach pain, pain during sex, and heavy bleeding, have an extremely long history of being pathologized as physical expressions of emotional distress. In the 19th century, women's pelvic and abdominal pain, as well as their menstrual derangements, was met with aggressive, butchering surgeries, hysteric accusations, and spells in asylums. Today, women are frequently dismissed as neurotic, anxious, depressed, hypochondriac, and even hysterical when they report the early symptoms of endo. For too long, menstrual and gynecological pain has been minimized as the natural and inevitable consequences of being female. Yeah, that quote is devastating for me. My, that's actually one thing I forgot to mention that my mom has struggled with. And I have actually multiple friends that I could think of when I read that in the book that have endometriosis and have really suffered with it. It's just been debilitating and so disruptive in their lives. And and I just grieved reading that, that it's not better understood to get them some relief from that that terrible pain. And and Cassie, we, we should mention too, because I for listeners who haven't heard about endometriosis, the endometrial tissue is tissue, is it the lining of the uterus? It's like the inside of the uterus that then grows outside the uterus, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And Correct. terribly painful. I, I understand. Right. And this leads us to another quote that I think is very important. Clayhorn says, speaking out about your own body is profoundly feminist. It is generous and courageous to revisit and recall the trauma of pain and a radical gesture in a culture skewed towards doubting and disbelieving women. It's a risk, but at the same time, it is an act of defiance against those power structures in the man-made world that would prefer us not to speak. Okay, so the next part we wanted to highlight is chapter one, and we're each going to share a part. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to read kind of a long section because it's so well written and it it's kind of foundational, right? It's, it's from ancient Greece, and we've talked about ancient Greece several times on this podcast, but this is specifically as it as it impacted the formation of, you know, the field of medicine. 
So I'm going to read the beginning of chapter one, which is titled Wandering Wombs. On the Greek island of Kos, many centuries ago, a girl was taken ill. At first, she felt strangely weak, her chest heavy and tight. Soon she began to shiver with fever. Pain gripped her heart. Terrifying hallucinations swarmed her mind. She was found wandering the streets, so consumed by heat and hurt that she wanted to end her life. Throwing herself down a well or hanging from a tree by a noose would have been pleasant compared to the torment that racked her body and mind. Her father called for the physician, a man trained in the arts of healing. The physician had seen this illness before in girls who had started to menstruate but hadn't yet married. As they developed into puberty, their plentiful female blood had been used up by growing. Once they had grown into women, all that extra blood accumulated in their wombs, ready to spill out every month. All physicians knew that this was how the female body stayed healthy. This girl was drowning in her own blood. It had no way to flow out, so it had traveled from her womb back through her veins, inflaming her heart and poisoning her senses. The physician urged the girl's father to marry her off without delay. Intercourse would open her body so her blood would flow out, and pregnancy would make her healthy. In another home on the island, an older married woman was seized by a violent convulsion. Her eyes rolled back. She ground her teeth, saliva foamed in her mouth. Her skin was deathly cold, her abdomen wrenched with pain. Her husband called for the physician. This malady often befell women of her age who had stopped having sex and bearing children. He watched the woman writhe and sob and noted that her skin was clammy. The woman's womb, empty and dry because it wasn't being filled, had crept towards her liver in search of moisture. From there, it had blocked her diaphragm and robbed her of breath. The woman was being suffocated by her own womb. Soon, the physician hoped, phlegm would flow from her head to moisten her womb and weigh it down. The physician listened to the woman's belly for the gurgling sounds of the womb returning to its rightful place. If it lingers too long near her liver, she will choke to death. If she had only been having sex regularly, she might have been spared this misery. Okay, so these stories are from an ancient Greek text called the Hippocratic Corpus, which is a collection of medical treatises attributed to Hippocrates of Kos, who is the ancient Greek physician known as the father of medicine from the classical era. And this is from the 4th and 5th centuries BCE. And everyone knows Hippocrates because of the Hi- Hippocratic Oath, which is what you know doctors who are graduating from medical school and starting to practice, they still take the Hippocratic Oath. So I'll read just one more little bit from this chapter, and then we'll dive into discussing it. Hippocrates emphasized how women's bodies and illnesses needed to be dealt with very differently to those afflicting men. He stressed how important it was for physicians to learn correctly from a patient the origin of her disease by questioning her immediately and in detail about the cause, which is great, right? I mean, that's better than I expected, to be honest. (laughs) But um, and it's and it's really important. And we read also the book Invisible Women about data bias and how like you can't treat a woman's body like a man's body because they're so different. Um, But there's also a problem because she says, quote, Hippocrates was not exactly championing women's right to body autonomy and informed medical choice. The Hippocratic Corpus was written at a time when most women had few, if any, civil or human rights in the patriarchal social order of ancient Greece, 
Girls were the properties of their fathers and women of their husbands. They had no ownership over land, property, money, or even their own bodies. They were seen as weaker, slower, smaller versions of the male human ideal, deficient and defective precisely because of their difference to men. But in their difference, women possessed the most useful and mysterious organ of all, the uterus. Since their sole purpose was to bear and raise children, women's health was entirely defined by their uteruses. And that's the end of that quote. But I thought it was worth reading the whole thing because it it just encapsulates so much. So that's so much to unpack in that that quote. Um, Certainly Hippocrates influenced, in particular, the treatment of women for a very, very long time. This was one of the main writings that um, that stood there up until about Galen's time. And it is interesting that he saw women so differently. But in that idea of looking at women's bodies as being different, of course, it's that they're inferior. Mm-hmm. And differences allow for us to blame blame things all on the uterus is what what he did, because that's something men don't have. Uh, And it was seen as an inferior part of the body. So it it wasn't particularly helpful to the treatment of women for a very long time. Uh, Yeah. And that diagnosis too, like it just like gutted me, which is why I chose to read that whole section. But the two examples of the young girl and like, well, if it's a problem, it must be coming from her uterus. So what's the, what's the, um, the solution sorry. is more, yeah. more, more sex, <laughs> more sex with her husband, marry her off, more sex, get that, get a baby in that uterus. And then for the older woman too, who's probably menopausal age, what's the problem? She's not having sex. She's not childbearing anymore. So she's like lost her value in society. Oh, it's so. Yeah. It is just so very male centric, right? Exactly, and we see we see symptoms that we could say now were epileptic seizures or mm. uh, complications of pregnancy. All of these things. It's a little easy to read into it what we might think those symptoms were into a modern right. diagnosis that they didn't uh, weren't experienced with at that time. But the solutions right. kept coming back to surrounding the uterus and the sexual and reproductive system? And the answer was yes, to put them into use. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a lot to unpack there still, but I think we'll leave it at that. Yes. And then I'd like to share a quote from this chapter as well. Cleghorn goes on to, to talk about that medieval Christian moral law forbade Medici or medical doctors at the time, from physically examining any woman. The female body was shrouded in secrecy and shame, and not only to the eyes and hands of male physicians. Women themselves wouldn't have dared reveal intimate detail to men about what was going on in their own bodies. Some medical writers of the time echoed these sentiments, including one who referred to a woman's gynecological complaints as her disgrace. Hippocrates and later Pliny the Elder thought menstrual blood could make men ill, ruin crops, kill bees, and drive dogs mad. Cleghorn highlights that these myths set the stage long ago for medical disparities which continue to affect women today, and even more so women of color. She says, by the 14th century, 
women physicians were prohibited from practicing professionally across Europe. Even when medical men were forbidden to touch women's bodies, it was male-authored knowledge that determined how they might be healed. So there's a couple of things here. I mean, there were, it was very rare that there were women physicians. Women weren't allowed to access university training in most places. So this access to academic knowledge sharing, medical knowledge, it was nearly an exclusively male domain. Although predominantly midwives and women in the community did much of the manual work caring for women's health. So really interesting points that she's sharing here. But then let's move on to to chapter two. And in this chapter, we start looking at religious doctrine and medical discourse. Both of these claimed that women's bodies and minds were inferior, defective, and dangerous. Women also carried the added burden of suffering painful childbirths. And the narrative was that this was punishment for original sin. As if this was not enough to control women already, Cleghorn now walks us through how the church used this medical idea of female inferiority to show that women were susceptible to channeling demonic forces and committing evil deeds meriting their destruction. And this was just fascinating to me. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes about this because it seems like such a stretch, but... As, as we know, accusations of witchcraft had a huge impact on the safety of women. So to begin with, she talks about the, this quote, the 13th century Italian physician Diascoli wrote that women menstruate every month because they are, by nature, imperfect beings. Medieval physicians and natural philosophers upheld the traditional wisdom that female biology was universally weak and inferior because of its difference to the male ideal. Medical men were putting a new theological spin on the ancient teachings. All human women were daughters of Eve who had to endure God's punishment by submitting to their husbands and suffering the pain of childbirth. But the problem wasn't God but mortal men who manipulated Christianity's foundational myths to justify society's subjugation of women. Well, here I might argue a little bit with Cleghorn mm-hmm. that, that <laughs> these myths didn't need manipulating to subjugate <laughs> women, but that subjugation was their original intent. But mm-hmm. I'm digressing a little. Um, <laughs> this sacralization, though, of women's pain not only strongly influenced period perspectives on childbirth, But as she shows us, it had long-standing, continuing influence on how medical men perceived, and more importantly, whether or not they treated women's pain. So going back to this idea that we opened with, that society viewed, and on some level still views, women's primary role as procreation, Cleghorn makes a convincing case that women who deviated from this role or helped others to gain power over their own bodies had to be controlled and stopped, and witch hunts were one form of this control. She explains that as great plagues decimated the European population, sometimes by nearly 50%, and I quote here, she says, women, the very vessels of conception, birth, and new life, had to be scrutinized, regulated, surveyed, and controlled. Men not only had the power to determine how women should live and behave. 
they also had medical control over women's bodies. And this theme will reappear again later in chapters that come up as Claycorn exposes how medical men vigilantly inspected women for signs of syphilis, although it was often spread by male soldiers, or signs that a woman may have had an illegal abortion. But in chapter two, what Claycorn is doing here is she's tying the scrutiny to witchcraft accusations in middle in the Middle Ages. So another quote here. She says, suspicion around women's deviant and demonic potential rose stealthily across Europe, especially through the teachings of Catholic churchmen who upheld the religious and social sanctity of marriage. One such man was Henrik Kramer. So according to Cleghorn, Kramer believed that the devil needed agents on earth to afflict people with evils on his behalf. In order to infect a woman with witchcraft, she must have any one of three specific vices, whether it's infidelity, ambition, or lust. So what Claycorn is saying here, it's really no surprise. Uh, these are just the sort of women that the church and state would want to control and possibly eliminate. Well, chapter three in this book touches on many historical misconceptions about women's anatomy in particular. We've mentioned the uterus, but this, this chapter really talks about it quite a bit. This concealed hidden organ, which is the human origin, it's always figured really prominently within the all-male world of medicine and anatomical study. Most medieval and early Renaissance drawings of the uterus, though, were just a composite. They were composites of human, bovine, and fetal anatomy, and represented hmm. a synthesis of many diverse anatomical inquiries. Cleghorn describes the Renaissance physician's quest to understand the uterus and the entire female anatomy, and I quote here, as a new frontier to colonize with knowledge. <laughs> I like that quote. Mm -hmm. um, however, it was really rare to find female cadavers for dis dissection, and these, these women were often those who had been condemned or were sex workers that had died. So one such cadaver appears in a woodcut on the title page of one of the earliest and most famous anatomy books, and that is Vesalius's Fabrica, which is based entirely on dissected human corpses, and it had far more accuracy than any previous anatomy books. And Claycorn talks about this a little bit. She describes this gendering of medical knowledge figured in this woodcut. What she says is that this woman is splayed open on the anatomist's table before hordes of onlookers. Vesalius' hand points towards her uterus. Her body is diminished to a spectacle of knowledge, theatrically unveiled and meticulously scrutinized by men for men. Midwives and other women healers would have really not had access to dissections such as this. Even though by the 16th century, we see through the, there were statutes governing midwives, at least in France, and these outlined that midwives were to have access to yearly anatomical lessons, even though they were still barred from university education. This is something they're supposed to have. This knowledge was so vital for their practices and the women they treated. 
And while anatomists and natural scientists had had little access to women's bodies for dissection and research for centuries, this was mainly because of cultural and religious grounds. But we do know that surgeons and physicians did have opportunity both through interventions and through autopsies to be familiar with women's anatomy. Okay, there's just one quote that I wanted to talk about in chapter four, although I will say to listeners, if you do read this book, chapter four contains one of the most interesting stories I think I've ever heard. The story of Anne Green was such an interesting story, but we'll let that be a teaser so that you'll read the book. And the quote that I want to share from chapter four and then see what you think about it, Cassie, is this, quote, much of women's everyday care in health and sickness happened in the home practical experience of herbal recipes in wound dressing and fever relief was shared between mothers and grandmothers, sisters and daughters. And I just thought that was really lovely. Right, exactly. Uh, Cleghorn shares, women did collect and share tried and tested medicinal recipes that were often based on their kitchen gardens. And they used these to treat their families, their neighbors, or in the case of midwives, their clients. Hmm. That's so fascinating and such a great point. So the next part that we wanted to discuss is chapter five on feeling pain, which is a lot what we just discussed in this previous chapter. But the main point of chapter five is that women's pain was not taken seriously. Um, even when there is, you know, observable evidence of a physical malady, pain in women was assumed to be exaggerated or that it was emanating from the emotional disturbances caused by the womb. Um, one of the, the main points that we wanted to talk about in this chapter is that women were perceived as experiencing pain differently, not only from men, but differently from each other. And the higher the class of the woman, the higher the social class, and the lighter the skin, the more delicate and refined the woman was presumed to be. And that was, of course, prized as ultra-feminine, which is what a woman was supposed to be. And then the lower class and the darker the skin, then the more kind of hardy and impervious to pain the woman was presumed to be by her doctor or by any doctor, really. And I want to share a quote from the book. Cleghorn says, racist assumptions that black women feel less pain than white women echo insidiously through medical practice today. In the 19th century, with, with its focus on social status and sensibility, these assumptions became firmly entrenched. Okay. Well, I think it's it's probably time to move on from pain <laughs> at um well, chapter 14 goes on and highlights how sexually transmitted infections became a vehicle for controlling women. And at this time, there were 33 states enforcing premarital screening legislation. And I believe I mentioned this before, that, that in the past, medicine was very well aware that soldiers transmitted syphilis. It was known as French disease in many countries because of French soldiers spreading it. But by the 19th century, the spread of syphilis was generally blamed on female sex workers who were framed as deviant hosts, transmitting their sin to innocent, courageous soldiers. Mm. Uh, and, and so this was yet another way. Women could not even get married without being screened for syphilis and then 
having to be treated, even though the screening process was frequently incorrect and many women suffered needlessly. But they're they're being blamed for something that uh, may not have started with them, certainly. Mm -hmm. And finally, I I want to talk about uh, abortion rights because this discussion really can't end without bringing that up. Cleghorn uh, opines in her writing that abortion rights were a class issue. Women were ending pregnancies regardless of the law, but how much danger this posed depended on their means. So what she's saying here is those women who could afford it would get pills for so-called menstrual blockage, while those who couldn't afford it had to resort to herbal brews, knitting needles, or even worse, until abortion finally became legalized. But as Cleghorn brings out, today abortion rights remain a point of political, cultural, and religious contention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are getting abortions either way, but it's people who are the most vulnerable in society who are using those like life-risking methods to perform their own abortions. It's just... It's just awful. And when you think of it that way, too, that the rich have always been able to afford abortions, they've always been doing it, you know, secretly. But, but yeah, the poor people don't have access to it. It's awful. Correct. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end. And again, there was so much in the book. I learned so much from this work and am so grateful that I read it. And I just want to thank you again for sharing all your insights and stories. And thanks for reading this giant book with me and, and talking about it. You were just fantastic. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm.